Hey everybody, I'm Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, and I'm here with my friend Enrique Bertrand, the new BDM. Say hello, Enrique. Hi everybody, hi everybody in the chat. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, so we wanted to get together and talk about 4E, the fourth edition of D&D. Both Enrique and I played a lot of fourth edition of D&D. D&D 4E has kind of been a topic, I guess it was probably a topic two weeks ago, and now no one's talking about it. And and given given our general speed of things, we decided, hey, two weeks later, let's talk about 4E. But we're on, uh, delay. Yeah, we're on delay, but I'm sure it's a topic that'll come around again. And I thought, you know, it would be interesting to kind of go back and talk about 4E now that we're like six years into fifth edition, right? It's been 10 years since 4E first came out. Uh, and what are, what are our thoughts about it? Uh, I, so just thinking off the top of my head, since we don't have any kind of script or anything, one no, question. No, hold on. Yeah. Well, hold on. Go. I was going to, I was going to put an agenda together and ask you the Do question. It. Yeah. So, so I think the first question we need to start about 4E yeah. to me is what is the thing you like the most about fourth edition D&D off the top? Uh, sure. Should I answer that or are we still going down the agenda? No, answer that. Answer that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to moderate you on your channel. Uh, so off the top of my head, excellent. So off the top of my head, I would say monster role, not monster roles, but the monster types like minions, normal monsters, elites, and solos was a really good and interesting way to break up the types of monsters that you faced. And knowing that an elite monster was worth two monsters and a solo monster was worth four monsters and a minion was worth basically a fifth of a monster. I, I you know, it made encounter building much easier. Uh, it made sort of the, the systemic style of, of combat, but it also had problems too. But I won't talk about the problems. I, off the top of my head, that's something, that's something I, I really liked. I think... And I and I thought about this when the conversation came up on Twitter a few weeks ago. Like you said, I think the thing I think the thing I miss the most about 4E is the ease of prep for for your games and the way that it told DMs here we're going to make this easy for you to do and here's you know here's a great way to do it and it, it made encounter building easy. It made the stat blocks easy to read and run. The monsters were easy to run. Even you know. And I think this is a, a this this one is debatable. Even the way the encounters were laid out, you know, it was easy easy for a DM to sort of pick up and you know skim over it a little bit, and boom, boom you're ready to go. And, and you could be giving in a night minimal amounts of you know prep necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's what I missed the most about the game. Yeah, just just the other day, I can't remember why I decided to, but I pulled out the first edition or the first. Dungeon Master's Guide for 4th Edition, because they had two, and they kind of had three because they had the Dungeon Master's Kit. Uh, and I looked at the encounter building rules in 4th Edition compared to 5th Edition, and they still had a lot of this, like, compare the experience point bonuses of how much a monster is worth with the level of the characters and stuff like that. But they all matched, and it meant that in your head you knew that like a, a normal level 13 monster was the equivalent of a single level 13 character. And it, because you knew that, you then knew how much an elite is worth, and you then knew how much a solo is worth, and you knew how much a minion is worth. And then you could scale it up and down based on that in your head. So they had an encounter building system that you could build in your head. Uh, but right. those, so, and, and, and yeah, so I guess before we get to complaints, the interesting thing is I can also argue why both of the things that we talked about are also not that great at the same time. But I, I don't think we want to dive right into things we didn't like about 4th edition. What else did you, what else did you dig about 4E? Um, I don't know. I that, got, I'll, I'll throw that, one out that, while you're thinking. That, 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 <laughs> that, that, you know what it is? That, it's a lot that of is, stuff. Uh, no, no, but you know what it is? That was such a big part of what I liked about 4E mm -hmm. that that to think of other things that I liked, I mean, over the years, there's so much more I started disliking about it. Mm -hmm. But the big standout of what I loved about it was the way it treated DMs. Yeah, I right. never, it I gave never a lot of, it. I, yeah, I never experienced it as a player, so I really can't talk on the player side of things. For mm -hmm. example, yeah. So, so I remember the first thing that caught my attention with 4E, and I, 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 I literally ran up to Rob Hainso, one of the developers, when he was at Winter Fantasy, when it was here in Washington D.C., and I said like. The, the first thing that caught my eye was that critical hits were just a straight 20. 
Like if you rolled a 20, you did a crit. And if you recall, in 3.5, they had confirmation of critical hits. So you would roll a 20, and then you'd have to roll again to see if you hit, to see if that critical took effect. And it was like a, it was like a wet blanket. It was like a, you know, a popped balloon when you would roll a 20 and then miss on the next attack, and then the crit would go away. And that was so, you know, it was, it, was, it was this complicated mechanic. And in 4, it was like, a crit is a crit is a crit. Now, of course, then they dumped all this stuff on top of critical hits that made them wildly overpowered. That was a whole other... That was, hey, Dave the Game is here. Dave Chalker's in, in, in our chat channel. Talking about old 4E, old 4E vets. Uh, I remember, so just to give, make it a little Dave the Game story, at that same Winter Fantasy, I saw Dave Chalker walk in with a posse of people behind him, right? Like he was, like, like, like he was David Bowie. And he walked <laughs> in, and I was like, wow, that's Dave Chalker. Like, holy cow, he's right over there. Like, I've been reading this guy's blog forever. He's sitting right over there. You know, and I don't even think I introduced myself to him. I met Dave later, and we hung out. Uh, I would crash his uh, great big games that he would run at Gen Con, and, uh, and we've became friends since then. Uh, Dave, the game says he was David Bowie back then. It's, he, he, sure, he sure played the part. Um, and that was actually when I started blogging, because I did a Tumblr uh, I did a Tumblr blog about my first experiences with 4th edition at Winter Fantasy. Uh, when it first came out. And that was where I also ambushed uh, uh, Rob Hainso to, to ask him all these questions, which is mostly about how is 4E going to make better on all the stuff that 3.5, the 3.5 did. Um, but yeah, uh, so one of the other things that I think is a real big one for me, and it's something that I actually feel was lost, is that 4th edition first level characters were big meaty characters that could survive a lot. They were already heroes. They could, they could handle encounters. They could do all kinds of things. And 5th edition first level characters get their asses kicked by just about everything. You know? And if you actually run the hardcover adventures in 5th edition, uh, they, they are wildly, they just beat the crap out of first level characters. And, and it's something that like, my wife and I still talk about now. We're like, you know, you know a first level 4th edition character is roughly the equivalent of a 3rd level character in 5th edition. And uh, I, I think that at least it, something that was missed was at least the option to have beefier first-level characters, like whether it was a hit point bump or some other kind of optional rule that they could have put in the Dungeon Master's Guide to make first-level characters not quite so weak. Of course, lots of people get over this by just starting them at third, and that's fine. But it would have been nicer to have just a little touch where you have the simplified characters with the very focused things but still are not going to get killed by two giant rats. You know what else I liked? I liked the setting that they created for 4E and yep. the idea Nets that we were all learning. Well, the the idea that we were all learning about the setting for the first time together, and it wasn't there wasn't any weight, any canon weight behind it, there wasn't any assumptions about it. You know, we were all learning about Fallcrest at the same time. We're all learning about um, the the you know the the points of light setting. Yeah, sure. The, there were no no assumptions, and I thought that was a great and it was fresh because you know. We had been under the the weight of box sets for the Forgotten Realms for so many years, and Greyhawk. <laughs> yeah, it's never. It, yeah, yeah. I talked to uh, uh, our friend uh, Sam Dillon, DM DM Samuel, about this uh, before. He he is a huge fan of the the points of light setting and the Nentir Vale, which was kind of the core the core setting for their first nine adventures. I mean, remember, they had those adventure folders that had like the H1, paperback. H1, H2. Yeah, H1, H2, H3. H3. So they had nine, nine yeah. adventures that went from first to 30th level. That was actually my big campaign. I ran a four-year uh, fourth edition campaign based on those nine adventures uh, all the way through. And um, yeah, that, that, the way it sort of expanded out the Nantir Vale, and then it got into the Feywild and the Shadowfell, which were kind of new, sort of new planes. Um, yeah, so it was a very unique, a very unique setting. And I know like, like Sam is actually taking pieces of it and bringing it into his fifth edition games. He's, I don't know if he's run Nentir Vale, but I know like he's taking, um, what's that create the crawling God. Uh, I forget the name of it. Torog. Yeah. He's bringing, he's bringing Torog into his Frost Maiden game. And, uh, I know that. So, so he, he, there's parts of the lore that he really likes. And that is something where, Watsy definitely regressed and said, no, we're just going back to the Forgotten Realms. We're going to go on the Sword Coast and we're going to focus on the Sword Coast. And, and not being a Realms guy, like, I it never bothered me that much because I, I was never too intimidated by the amount of stuff that existed uh, previous to, like, what 5th edition had. And the idea that it focuses on the Sword Coast is perfectly fine with me. It's not like Nentir Vale was very big. So there's a lot of complaints of, like, they've been focusing on the Sword Coast and they've never gone anywhere else. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know. I mean, hey, you can always play wherever you want. Right and and, and 
poor people on the Sword Coast. So many things happen. I know so many bad there. things. Like how many how many different <laughs> gods have come and they're like, I just want a farm, man. I got my farm and freaking Tiamat's flying over every other day. Terrible. So, poor people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else? What else? So, so yeah, go ahead. It, I, the other day I was talking about 4E and, I, and I, there was a thread somewhere about, about I guess it was criticisms of 4E. My, my biggest criticism of 4E and this is one that that affected me. You know, this this is why 4E ultimately became a, a burden for me was because you had to approach 4E, and I know that some people you know like to like to deny this, but you have to approach 4E as what it is. It's a tactical miniature combat yep. engine yep. With, with a role playing game around it. I mean, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. That's there's nothing wrong with that. It, it, mm -hmm. it was very well made tactical combat game. But if you're not a tactical person, or if that's not the kind of game you like to play, you're going to struggle with that a little bit. Right. And I, I, I never played miniature games. I wasn't a Heroclix guy. I wasn't a, a miniatures guy. Like, that was never my thing. So coming into 4E, I felt like I was playing chess against five people. <laughs> right. Five other brains and, against yours. <laughs> and, and some of those brains were tactical yeah. combat gamers. Like, I had a guy yeah. who was a, a huge Heroclix guy. I had another yeah. guy who played miniatures. So it was like, those guys know this stuff. And I'm trying to figure out how to make these kobolds, you know, seem threatening. And it wasn't easy. Right. It, it wasn't an easy thing to pull off when you're, it's one against five and you're playing chess on a board. And yeah. it's like, man, and, and the combos and this and that. And the game wasn't very good about that aspect of it. It taught, it, it gave you rules for it, but it wasn't very good about strategies. Right. And it wasn't very good about teaching you how to play those type of games. Yeah. Yeah. It just assumed you knew. Yeah, and that's where I struggled the most, and that's where it kind of became a little bit of a, of a eh, for me because the fights tended to take long because there was so much paralysis analysis, mm -hmm. analysis paralysis about where to go next and, and what should I do, and that it just it 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 just got too much of a of a of a heavy lift for me to to, to figure that out. Yeah, and I and I've I've talked about this in articles before as I as I've sort of now opened up to more theater the mind combat from tactical combat. You know, like I dove deep into the tactical side on 4E. I was a I was a grid player with miniatures in 3.5. So when they refined a lot of those rules in 4E, that's what I uh, you know I was very happy that they did because I felt like they solidified the way I was already playing. Um, somebody just is trying to backstab you, by the way. So um, they. Uh, but one thing that that did is it created a competitive environment between the DMs and the players. So beyond sort of focusing on that tactical side, the fact that you felt like you were on one side of the table and the other people on the other side of the table, you're not there to try to help sort of share this story. You're there to like, how do I make sure my monsters are acting in the most tactically optimal way? you know, for this situation. And, and you, and you were going to lose every time pretty much. Right. Um, so that, and that, that was something where the, the, the transition from fourth to fifth, which I think a lot of people had sort of embraced in the earlier versions, particularly first and second edition of D and D. And then it sort of swayed towards that more tactical combat in third and fourth, um, is that idea that the DM is not the antagonist, right? The DM is not a competitor. The DM is there to help channel a story along with the players at the game. And I, and, and, you know, I think back on my fourth edition campaign and there was a lot of story stuff that happened that was really big and that we all remember. There's also some tactical stuff we all remember. Uh, you know, when I talked to the players who, who played with me back then and um, it's, it's, but it still felt like it was this competitive environment. And I remember I would feel frustrated a lot of the times I hated when my big boss monsters would get like stun locked in a corner, you know, and everyone just beat the crap out of them and never took a single hit. Uh, our, our, our mutual friend, George Ortiz loves to bring up, uh, Hospitaller's Blessing. He, he built a character around this one power called Hospitaller's Blessing. Uh, and the, the, the way the power worked was, uh, anybody within 30 feet that took damage could trigger a healing surge and, and heal some hit points. And they went in to fight a beholder and they walked out with more hit points than when they started. So not only, <laughs> not only did the beholder not drain any resources, it gave them resources to fight a beholder because of the way that power worked. And what George would remind us of is if you Googled the power, the first hit was me complaining about it on the Wizards forum, saying, like, you know, this is a game-breaking power. Uh, but that probably gets to my biggest problem with 4th edition, which was it was not play-tested. And I talked to designers of 4E uh, who are no longer with the company. Some aren't with the company anymore. I think some still are, so I won't name names. But they talked about the process 
that they were under to design stuff for 4E. And they said that the design documents were changing while they were publishing the powers. So that one group over here, an area burst one, meant something different than a guy over here who was doing area burst five. And that's why you had these like, uh, there was a, a solar blast was a power a cleric got that was a, an area burst five that did just a little bit of damage to everybody in an area, but it was a complete minion wiper. Like you could walk into a room and hit it and this huge, you know, 11 square by 11 square grid would be wiped out of minions in one shot. And that was in the core book that was in the player's handbook. And it just ruined encounters until they nerfed it and they actually errated it and then made it an area burst one. So now it's only doing whatever's directly around the cleric, right? But that's such a huge mechanical change and that was one of many 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 massive mechanical changes that were put in the errata and you and i were laughing the other day when we pulled up the uh the fourth the, edition errata and it's a 96 page pdf it's, mass, it's, it's massive it's, the whole book it's a whole book on its own the whole book and what it means is like if i have the first fourth edition player's handbook over there i cannot pick that book up and play the game right and if somebody had gone to you know I don't know if Wal Walden Books is probably gone by then. But if they went to a bookstore and bought the player's handbook, immediately you'd have to tell them the 96 things that are broken in that book that you're not going to allow at your table, which meant they bought a book for 50 bucks that isn't useful. Yeah. And with 5th edition, you know, I was I was kind of amazed the other day because I was like, I'm, I'm about to run Rhyme of the Frost. I've actually started running it for one group and I'm about to run it for another. And I don't have a single house rule. And they can buy, they can have the first print of the player's handbook for fifth and use that straight and there's no change at all right there's like those little quibbly bits i have but none of them are like the kind of stuff that was broken in fourth edition and that's that's a really strong position to be in right like that that's amazing there, there, there was a big deal at my table because i would you know not not everybody and and there's a stat that goes around i don't know if i don't know what it is but there's a stat that goes around that you know 90 percent of the player base isn't online and doesn't follow twitter and doesn't yeah I don't, really I don't know how you know that. <laughs> I've seen it thrown out, you know, based on people at game stores and stuff like that, that, that not everybody follows, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm sure it's true, but it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to look the, at the unknown pile because <laughs> it's the unknown. Discourse. Right. But the point right. is that I would show up at my table with errata for certain classes or whatever, and my players were like, where did you get this from? No, what, what do you right. mean I can't use this power anymore? And it just became like a like a like a proverbial fire hose of you know yeah. shooting errata every few weeks. Oh, it's constant. Tables. Yeah, right. And everybody and my, have to change their stuff. And everybody just got sick of it. Like it just became like, no man. Like we got to decide if we're gonna play with errata or not. Like no, I got to play with errata because right these things don't work right, and then they affect you know his fun and my fun and your fun and you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. like right away we found stuff. So I, I have a friend of mine. Um, who now lives in Europe, but he was he was playing and he had a rogue and the rogue had an ability to hit somebody and, and, and do a, what they call a slide five, which meant he could push a character in any five squares around him. And they would set up a wall of fire on one side and he would slide them in and out like a zigzag into the wall of fire. And there was no rule about whether or not they'd take damage every time they entered it or not. So they could take three times the fire damage by, by moving him in and out of a wall. And, and it was like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure the wall of fire isn't intended to do three times more damage on someone else's turn. So we had, we had to house rule that, right? And say, like, they only take damage the first time they enter it or if they begin it or some other nonsense. But there was, there was a, lot of, a lot of stuff going on. By the way, the jet engine you hear in the background is my washer. And if I stop it, I ruin a load of laundry. Sorry. So we didn't know we were doing the show or we wouldn't have done laundry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's really... You know, what's interesting, and I think, I think you know, and I think you and I probably have talked about this before, that the, the, the golden era of 4E was Essentials, right? Did you play much with D&D Essentials? Yeah, I had all the products. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it was so much better, right? And it was like now you had differentiators between classes. Uh, the monsters in the monster book were way better. They, were, they did more damage but had fewer hit points, which meant battles were faster. Uh, the, the format was really weird because the format was trade paperback books or box sets that had trade paperback books. So now you have all of these nice hardcover books and then this big stack of, I, I'm looking at it right now, big stack of trade paperback books. And it's like, but by the time that came out, it was already too late. Like Pathfinder was already pretty big at that point. Um, and the, uh, you know, everybody who had an opinion about 4E already had their opinion set and and players who played 4e a lot of stuff got nerfed 
So, like, the ranger for the player's handbook was way stronger than the ranger in the essentials kit. So it was really hard to get somebody who played with a player's handbook to then accept the essentials characters because they were so much weaker. And I remember my players were just disappointed. Like, I'd say we're going to play essentials only. Like, that was my house rule is any book that came out from the time essentials came out forward, those are the ones that are allowed. And they just hated it. They were like, what about Twin Strike? And I'm like, Twin Strike is overpowered. <laughs> it's like it's twice as much damage as it should do. So, um, yeah, so that, 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 you know, it's really interesting. And I think a lot of, a lot of people have speculated, like, what would 4E be like if Essentials was the first version of it? Right? That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I know that, like, we moved on, when we moved on to, we, we never picked up. You moved up to Dragon Age, right? I moved to Dragon Age. Yeah. And we loved Dragon yeah. Age. And yeah. when 5E came around. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, this is very similar to Dragon Age. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I fell in love with 5e, because it was more or less what I was already playing. Because Dragon Age, to me, was was a very different game from 4e. Right. And 5e, to me, is a very different game from 4e. So I, you know, yeah. I, yeah. I saw more of a thread between Dragon Age and 5e than I did between 4e and Sure. 5e. Yeah. And and some... I, uh, we really enjoyed it. But the essential stuff, like if you if, if 4e had started with essentials, yeah, I... I I think it could have been a lot more successful. I, I, I think part of what killed 4E was not just the errata that we've spoken about. Mm -hmm. I, I also think the marketing part was a little, was was not really good marketing. I don't mm -hmm. think telling people the game you like sucks, play this instead, <laughs> is a good marketing strategy. Right. They, there, um, was a, there was a lot of ego. There was a lot of, um, yeah. yeah, there was just, a, there was a lot of ego that surrounded 4E of like, we're D&D &D and we're going to push it to you. There was a, also, I mean, at the time, there was this big, like, video games are eating our lunch. And, I, you know, not to get into the whole D&D is World of Warcraft argument, which is a whole other problem. But, like, there was definitely this online component to it, which you might argue was, like, a few years too early compared to the online setup that we've got now, right? Where, like, I don't know if you're playing like I'm playing, but, like, all my games are online now. And I'm playing three games a week on Discord with D&D Beyond and Avre and Albert Rodeo. I know, you know, the rest of the world is using Roll20, and, and they've got a whole VTT there. Um, it's D&D's it, become a video game. You're playing it on your computer. You're playing it, right. Like, I, I, I realize, like, I have my, you know, I just did my, my show earlier about running Descendant Avernus. The number of times I've cracked open this book is pretty small because I have it on D&D Beyond. And it's so much easier for me to, like, quickly look things up, and I can do it on my phone, and it's just I've got things everywhere. So... Yeah. It's you could argue that it was it was a little too early. The but but one thing that I think is interesting about 4E compared to 5E is that with 4E they started with a character builder. They actually had two different character builders, I think, or maybe more. And the game was really built around the idea that you were going to use an online character builder. You weren't going to just pull out the book and write stuff in a character sheet. Like you couldn't do all the math and you couldn't figure out all the powers and and the powers themselves came on sheets of cards. Remember like you'd have like a nine nine card sheet that showed all your powers and all the calculations done there's no way you were going to do that by hand and for the first at least three years of fifth edition two or three years of fifth edition we had no builder it wasn't until dnd beyond came out there were a couple like pdf builders the more purple more better or whatever it's called was something that people used a lot which i think was bootleg yeah um but people did do hand done character sheets and you can i've got one of my players who just doesn't do beyond and he just likes doing hand hand drawn character sheets and he's perfectly fine beyond. Yeah, do you do everything by run, hand, or do you have any digital I run, tools? I don't run my games with Beyond. Mm -hmm. If uh, if uh, if Roll Twenty has a uh, oh yeah, I'll, sure. go to, I'll get a Roll Twenty campaign, maybe. Yeah, not always. And if not, I'll just you know do my encounters by hand. I have a good workflow with Roll Twenty, so I just mm -hmm. I know how to use it, and I'm I'm pretty proficient with it, so I, I don't have a problem. Yeah, and for for most of the time, I use the books. Like when I was playing at the local game shop and playing at my home game. I, I kind of liked just having the stack of books. And I, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I got to have my monster sheets on special cards. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good just looking it up. <laughs> right? Like I have little tabs and I'll just pull up a tab and read a stat block and, and go. So I think it's, I think that that fifth edition has, a, it's, it's a lot more robust. You know, it's a lot more durable as a game because you can just play with the three core books. You don't need anything else. You don't need an online tool. You don't need any online connection. No, you know, no. I, I, I've talked about before that like this game can survive a nuclear war, right? That like, as long as there are physical books out there, it's fine. And if one person has a set, a D&D game can happen. Where yeah. fourth edition, I think like once the character builder went away, I don't think a lot of people are playing 4E. 
you know, we were looking at the D&D, the, the Roll20 statistics for it. And I think almost every other version of D&D is played more than fourth edition is on, on Roll20, which is a shame because like there's something there. Um, our, our, you know, you know, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, right? The yeah. editor. So we, we were talking about it the other day and he brought up the fact that like, if it had been called something like D and D tactical, right. Yeah. That it, it might've been a totally different experience. If it was recognized that this is, if you want to play more of a tactical grid based version of the game, we wired one that's really tight here. You know, it's, and it's it's a great game at that, right? And it would be really solid at that, like the old like the old Final Fantasy Tactics uh, PlayStation game. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was on a grid grid based Final Fantasy Tactics. You know, we yeah. can call it that. Yeah. You know? So so uh, uh, optional rule in the stream chat said uh, the only thing Fifth Edition won't survive is Sixth Edition, and I completely disagree. Because I think if 6th edition came out, there would be a split and there'd be people like me who are like, I'm pretty good with 5th and they could play it forever because 1st edition has survived. BX, I just bought the uh, old school essentials book, which is a, essentially a copy of BX from freaking 1978 and people are playing that. So the game can absolutely survive versions and has survived versions because all versions of D&D with 4E being lower on the list are played now by, by people. So, so let me ask you a question. If you could, if you could bring in something from four E into five E, what would you bring in? The encounter building rules. The encounter building yeah. rules. Yeah, and in particular, to, to so one thing that I noticed when I was rereading, like I'm, a, I, you know, I don't know. I like to think I'm smarter now than I was then, and I didn't know it then when I was reading it. Now I've spent so much time like analyzing how fifth edition does encounter building that when I, one of the interesting things about the way encounter building is built in fourth is they do not account for the number of monsters. So there's no, mul if you look at the fifth edition rules, there's a multiplier of, ex of the experience budget, depending on how many monsters are in it, right? Have you, have you looked at the DM, the fifth edition DMG encounter building rules recently? I, I use Cobalt Fight right, Club. Right, use Cobalt Fight Club. Well, so, so Cobalt Fight Club is doing it for you. There's a dial that goes between like, one and two and a half. That's the multiplier of the experience budget dependent on the number of creatures. So if you add one Sturge to an encounter, the whole needle goes way off to the right, right? Because all of a sudden you go from three monsters to four and that's where it goes from like a one and a half to two. And then it multiplies the whole budget for everything. It's, it's the worst. It's A, it does, it's not accurate and it sucks anyway, even if you follow it. And B, it's really complicated. So who the hell's going to follow it? So everybody use like Cobalt Fight Club, the D&D Encounter Builder in, in D&D Beyond does it. Um, I actually came up with my own rule of thumb that is way easier, that works for me almost perfectly, and it, it's something I can do in my head. Uh, but when I looked at the fourth edition rules, they don't account for the number of monsters. They just say, here's your experience budget, and you can essentially, here's your total amount of experience points for an encounter, buy whatever monsters fit in that experience point budget. Right. And that's it, it. You know, you're still fiddling with experience points rather than levels or challenge ratings. But essentially, it's not too hard. Right. You get this. You think of like, I got a bunch of copper coins and I can buy monsters with copper coins. Fifth edition could have done that except for the multiplier. And actually, Dan Dillon, uh, I think he mentioned this before he became a uh, now he's a designer at Watsi. But I, I asked him recently if he still believes in that. And he said, I just I just skip the multiplier. I just ignore it. And so he uses the fifth edition rules the same way the fourth edition rules work and says it works just fine because you just don't care if you have a lot of monsters. It really, the action economy goes up, you know, goes off the needle, but who cares, right? The reality is characters are so powerful, they can handle it anyway. Hmm. And, and, you know, so it would have been so much easier if it didn't have that multiplier, but they wanted to be hyper accurate. So they included it. And then it turned out CR doesn't really work well anyway. So it really doesn't matter. I haven't done a deep dive on that. I just, I use I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent five years looking at it. <laughs> I think I have like six Life Flourish articles and I have different versions. In fact, I have multiple books now that have different ways that I handle it, you know? And, and, and so the easiest one, I'll give you one and I'll mention it. And anybody that's seen my show before has already seen this. And it was a big article on Life Flourish about it and stuff like that. But my rule of thumb is that a battle is potentially deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than half the sum total of character levels. So if you have five 10th level characters, uh, half of that is the sum total that have is 25. Uh, if your total monster challenge ratings are higher than 25, the battle is potentially deadly. 
right? And it's it's this potentially deadly because sometimes it's not deadly at all. I ran like double that yesterday, and I and I didn't kill the characters, so it can it can go off the scale. But it's a nice easy one I can keep in my head, um, you know, and it, and it works. Um, yeah, and optional rule brings up, hey, the the official module designers don't seem to pay any attention to CR, and that's absolutely true. Uh, you know. Everyone heard me, well, not, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say everyone because I'm sure everybody spends a lot of time thinking about what Sly Flourish has to say. But uh, Sethic from uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, you're, you're running Rhyme, right? I finished Rhyme. You finished Rhyme. Uh, so Sethic yeah. is a challenge rating three monster that they throw at first or second level characters. He's <laughs> like, you know, he's going to murder them, right? And everyone's like, ah, oh, but there's circumstances. And I'm like, maybe, but he's still way higher than he ought to be if you're going to use their own rules. Like, this is a book from Wizards of the Coast that <laughs> is not using Wizards of the Coast rules, right? Like, whatever, yeah. I know you guys had a, a just to clarify, I finished Rhyme because I started Rhyme in the later chapters, not because I read I remember hearing about that, yeah. And I, and I know you guys were talking about that. That's one of the enemies that comes out in the pre- like in the like in the before chat, whatever it's called, the pre the, the two little adventures that set up the the story. Yeah, the the cold right? they call it the cold yeah. open, right? Or the cold the cold yeah. opens, right? right? Yeah, yeah, the cold opens. Yeah, and and yeah. the argument. So I've I've heard all the arguments either way, right? And one argument is like, well, yeah, you get the quest at first level. That doesn't mean you finish it at first level. Maybe you get another quest. And I'm like, how come it doesn't say that? Right? Like I paid fifty bucks. Tell me how to run your game, right? And instead, it's like, no, you figure it out. I'm like ah. I think that I think that the hardcovers is a whole other conversation. <laughs> That's all. Let's talk. So somebody but, brought up Thirteenth Age. Oh, go ahead. Let, let me get back to to Forey. Yeah. If if you could pick one product, that one book or one product that you say this is the this is a marquee Forey product that I could easily say is the best, you know, the best Forey product. What would that be? I, I'm gonna I have go mine. with I'm gonna go with Gardmore Abbey. Uh, is that the is that the adventure that's included in the yeah? No, Ruins of Gardmore Abbey was its own box set. It was a big adventure. Let me give me a second. Pull it up here. Got, got it sitting right on the shelf. In any case, anybody thinks I don't like 4E, I've got all of it like sitting. Within yeah, that's the, that's the one I'm thinking about. Too. Madness Ruins of Gardmore Abbey. Abbey. Yeah, and so who who wrote it? Uh, James Wyatt. Creedon yeah, Broadhurst and Steve Townsend wrote this. And what I liked, it, it comes with, it, it was one of the few products that had everything in it you needed. So one of, one of my complaints about 4E is it was a grid-based game that didn't have a grid at first. And like dungeon tiles came out later and then the adventures didn't use dungeon tiles and it had all these maps, but none of the maps had any way for you to buy another Wizards product that could give yeah. you the maps. There were that all these great, problems. That has great maps on it. So That's this one had all the could, maps that you need. Yeah. That you could reuse for other things. Right. It had a That's bunch a of maps. Fantastic, it had box. Yeah, four adventure books, four 32-page books, and it had a full yeah. version of the Deck of Many Things, which you, know, actually, you can still use. I think I have it. Yeah, I got it all I got it all in here. So I ran it and I and I, you know, hey, look, it, I have my Deck of Many Things. Here's right, here's right another in. good one. Here's another good one, Mike. Yeah. I don't, did you ever play uh, Reavers of Harkenwood? Yeah, Harkenwood? I didn't. I never played it, but I but that that was one of the ones that came in uh, the yeah. DM kit, right? Yeah, this one's a really good one too. I was looking through this the other day, trying to. And that's what I mean. Like that was their heyday. Like they they nailed it with all that stuff. Because at that point, yeah. when Essentials came out, you had the you had dungeon tiles, so you could build the dungeons. If you looked in the adventures, the adventures used the dungeon tiles to make the dungeons. So it was yeah. like, it, and it came with tokens. You remember, like that was when the yeah. Monster Vault had all the monster tokens, which meant yeah, you essentially got like. Everything you needed was in the box at that point. You know, for a tactical game like that was the pinnacle. Of here was another. Here's another. And it took him years to get big, that. Another big complaint I had, and this is one that, keep in mind, I, I sort of skipped three E. Like, right, I didn't do a lot of three E, and especially not as a DM. And any three E experience I had as a player, not as a DM, right? Right. So I open up the four E books, right, and I see these battle maps and these beautifully illustrated, you know, Mike Shea battle maps. <laughs> Mike but then Schleich, you start yeah. counting the. Uh, yeah, Mike. Sorry. Just in case nobody convinces, yeah, nobody thinks they're yeah. me. <laughs> I had nothing start, to do with it. But then you look at the size of the maps, and it's like thirty squares by fifty, and I'm like, how am I supposed to? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this thing? <laughs> like, how do I recreate this at the table? Wait Man, a you should get the Beetle and Grim Curse of Strahd box set. It has it has a floor of Curse of Strahd that is six poster maps, six full size. Oh, you do? Did you have you tried laying out the 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 bottom floor? Uh, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. 
<laughs> yeah. Have you have you tried making the bottom floor? I, I put all the maps out on the floor in my living room, and it's amazing. <laughs> it's, I, it's, I have one that, room in my house where I can actually put the bottom floor out at once, and it's my kitchen because I have a big open kitchen. It's the only room in my house where I can do it. That set is ridiculously good, man. I don't understand. <laughs> I used to be a naysayer. I used to say, nah, Beatles and Grams, that's too expensive. I got right. that Strad box and it's, I'm like, it, wow. It, it, it's, it's like a clown car. It's like a clown car of accessories. You're like, oh my God, look at all the stuff in this thing, right? Yeah. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. But, so, but the four e-maps, yeah. I looked at those and I'm like, how am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do with this? How do I recreate this? Like, and and that was something that I'll I'll never forget. Like looking at those maps and saying, "Wow, man, these maps are sure pretty to look at, but this is not usable. Like, how am I supposed to? <laughs> I can't draw like that. I can't. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Where where am I? Where am I? Right. They just they didn't have the game. Kind of had all of these products that would have supported it that weren't out, and you would have to buy them from other companies. You know, yeah. to, to get them. You remember and then the dungeon? The dungeon tiles didn't map, didn't match <laughs> right. the maps in the books. Right. And then when they went, when they started using dungeon tiles, you couldn't get them anymore. And the adventures, you couldn't get them. Yeah, they, they were. <laughs> you go to Amazon crappy. and they're nine hundred dollars yeah. because they ran out. Of and them. they and they look crappy when they drew them on out of dungeon maps in the books. I'm like, this looks like crap. <laughs> <laughs> It was this. It, it was like it had all these sort of like product lines that were all sort of like randomly scattered, yeah. until Essentials came out, and then all of a sudden they all landed on the same thing. And you're like, you'd buy that 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 DM kit, and it had the tokens for all the monsters, it had the maps for all the dungeons, it had the adventure yeah. books, it had all the rules. It was all in one box, and it was a reasonable price. I think it was like thirty bucks, right? And and you know, but by then no one cared. Everyone was on. Everyone was on I, to new things. I have like containers like filled with old dungeon tiles that i don't know what to do with yeah i still got them i have a big wicker basket i'm the funny thing is i was i'm getting ready to give them away at my next local game convention because i just never use them and then COVID hit so now they're still in my you know i don't know (laughs) they're still in my closet and they're just like mixed in with all the different sets mine are all big dusty ziploc bags at least the the tiles are in good condition because they've been encased in ziploc for five years i Uh, have one shrink wrapped uh dungeon tile set two (laughs) <laughs> really i don't think i, I never i never even opened it it's just i mean there. they still sell them so now they have those master kits which is like yeah. they have the city and the dungeon and the wilderness and and they're a lot of reprints from the old from the old kits but they're bigger and have a lot more tiles i don't see them, me but, i don't see me using dungeon no. tiles ever somebody somebody brought up uh, uh earlier and they 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 said like how how does how does fourth edition feel from a i'm not saying this right but like the the, the tactical differences and similarities between fourth and fifth edition Right. And and, you know, I think they brought up the fact and I think you and I have had like big Twitter arguments about this on whether or not fifth edition is considered a grid based game. Right. And and I argue it is not a grid based game. It is a it has fixed distances with five foot intervals, but that doesn't make it by default a grid based game. And um, and I think one major for me, the major difference in fifth is that you can get all tactical. All the all the materials are there to have a very tactical game. You look at your battle master fighter. You know, and you have all sorts of like little fiddly bits. You look at a lot of the feats of like, if I'm next to a character, I can block the attack that's coming to the guy that's next to me. Uh, but all of them have options to run them without being on a grid. Uh, you don't need a grid in order to play. And there's, you know, I've, I've heard people have said that there is no such thing as fifth edition D&D without a grid. And I'm like, what have I been doing for a year? Right. Like I, I run almost I very rarely run on a grid. I run it for boss fights and that's about it. And the rest of the time I do everything in theater of the mind and it and, and the, it, it kind of works. Right. It, 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 but the argument I've heard and I run 5e on a grid. Right. Down down to the smallest mm-hmm. encounter. Um, you and most you and most DMs do that. Yeah. Only because my, my players prefer. Right. I, I guess I'm not the most descriptive person, so I don't give all the information. I don't I don't detail the room down to the last crate in the corner. Right. So right. they'd rather have a grid and, and see it. But. But. um, Shit, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, what what yeah. I was. No, I'm sorry. What I was going to ask you is, aren't there player characters? Or aren't there player options that depend on a grid to work effectively? It depends on your definition of effectively. Uh, no, to work as intended. No, I would say that they don't need to work as I haven't seen one yet where I haven't said there's a way for that to work in theater of the mind. The, like okay. the most complicated ones I've seen are like the the polearm master, where if they get with like within if you mix like 
polearm master with like the defensive fighter type where it's like if they come closer to me i get an attack of opportunity and i can prevent them from going near one of my allies the the, the theater of the mind one is just tell me what you want to do so like if a player says to me i want to make sure that i'm more than five feet away from an enemy and that if they come within my range i want to be able to hit them with an attack of opportunity and ensure that they're not hitting my buddy over here just tell me that and i'll make sure it happens <laughs> right like the, the the hard part is that it's hard to to convince players all players that you're on their side and you want them to do cool stuff. So it's like, just tell me what you want to do and I'll figure out how to do it. But most of the time, like there's no facing in fifth edition. There's no, like if there's, there's no, if you look at the optional rule for flanking in, in DMG, which I think about half of, you know, my, the last poll I ran, half of my polled Twitter followers or for people who saw the poll, uh, half of them use the optional flanking rules and half of them don't. Um, but there isn't the, there isn't the idea that you have to be on the opposite side of somebody. It's just, if, if I'm attacking an enemy that's within, that's adjacent to another ally of mine, I get a flank bonus, right? I get advantage and that can be done in theater of the mind. So I think they've been pretty careful to ensure that just about every, um, just about every power or just, yeah, just about every power can be done without needing to be on a grid. An argument would be something like lightning bolt. And I had this, I had this discussion with a, with a friend of mine. He and I have been playing D&D together for 15 years. And he wanted to line up a lightning bolt that against mounted targets. And I was limiting the number of mounted targets he could hit with the lightning bolt. And he was like, I, why can't I hit both the rider and the mount? And I was like, well, the mount is large. The rider is medium. And the lightning bolt is only five foot in diameter. And you have to hit with more than 50% of the bolt in order to do the damage and you're not. So you can either hit the riders or the horses, but not both. And that was one where like we went back and forth and, you know, but to what me, if and, hit, what, if, what if you hit the saddle? Right. And so, you know, the, the argument, and so Dave, Dave brings up lightning bolt and fireball are similar causes for ar the argument against the other mind. And mine is like, you can hit any three targets, right? Like you want to blast somebody with lightning bolt, you hit any three targets. Fireball, you can hit four targets or you can hit six if you're willing to put an ally in it. Right. And so like there's 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 some simple rules that I think a DM could put in place that vastly simplifies attacks and actually gives more agency to players because you don't have to worry if they're lined up or not. If I tell you you can hit any three enemies with a lightning bolt by moving around and firing it, you're you're going to get better options. And if you have to monkey around with a grid in order to line people up to hit and then you're only going to get two. Right. So I think uh, so Dave says that's a house rule. It's actually not. Um in the Dungeon Master's Guide, one of my one of my favorite pages, uh, there is a there is it, it's not really an optional rule. It's under like the DM kit, like DM options or DM advice. I don't know what the hell they call it, but essentially it says like if you want to figure out how many targets, so it it states the DM gets to decide how many targets something hits when it makes sense. But if you want something, you can you can basically take the area of the effect and divide it by a certain number, and it tells you how many targets. So a fireball, for example, the radius is divided by five, and that's how many targets you can hit with a fireball. So that's why four, four you can hit four targets with a fireball. But then the DM always gets to describe. But Dave brings up an interesting point, which I think is a philosophical difference between 4th edition and 5th edition, getting back to 4th edition, which is 4th edition, they stated this, uh, they stated this when they made it, that fourth edition was built to standardize dungeon mastering, right? One of their goals with fourth edition was to make sure that as a player, your experience would be pretty close to the same, regardless of the skill level or of the biases of the DM that you were playing with. It was a very organized play approach. We want to make sure that when you go to organized play, wherever you're sitting, you're going to have a similar experience. So they really put a lot of shackles on DMs to make sure that things worked a certain way. And fifth edition got rid of that completely and said the DM is responsible, you know, for running the game and let's hope that they're good. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that, that was also because 4E was such a, uh, it was aimed at almost that organized play right from the onset. I mean, the organized play program for 4E was a great, mm -hmm. you know, by all accounts, I don't do organized play, but by all accounts, uh, the encounters program and all that stuff really helped grow the edition and it was a really successful program right uh, and i think you know part of that approach is is due to that right um right. and I, and as a philosophy i don't have a problem with lining up the dming experience of of the game so that everybody gets you know more or less the same experience when they sit down and play D. &D. i mean i don't it, think that's a i don't think that's a bad approach no well 
I don't know, right? So what I what I like about that kind of stuff is like I, I like I like when companies in general do this, but I, I think it works here. That when you when you have a philosophy behind a game and you can argue the opposite side of that philosophy and it's still a reasonable argument, that means it's a it's a pretty good opinionated philosophy. So if you say like this version of D and D is going to build a baseline expectation for dungeon masters, or the other one is we're going to give dungeon masters a lot of um, we're going to give them the agency to run the game how they see fit, which is the the fifth edition model. Um, I think that uh, you know both of you, you you can argue both of them. Uh, I, I personally, my experience has been, and my feelings are, having played fifth edition, like I I think the the DM empowerment is better, especially because as soon as you give me a hundred percent responsibility, I'm not your enemy anymore, right? Like in fourth edition, if you if you have this sort of standardized rule set, well now we are playing chess, only it's one against five, right? Where with 5th edition, because it's kind of up to me to decide most of it, I'm not going to decide to screw you because you're not going to come back to my game anymore, right? And then I really say, like, we're all on the same side. So, like, I roll randomly for targets all the time rather than picking the tactical most optimal solution. I, I try to say, like, you know, this Death Knight is, is surrounded by three characters. Who is he going to hit next? And it's like, well, which one of them is the greatest threat to him or to his goal? I might go with that, or he might go, well, they're, they're close enough and it's the heat of battle. I'm just going to roll and he's going to pick one randomly. And I roll in the open and they say like, oh man, my, my warlock is going to get hit because he rolled a one and a two. Right. And then, and then it sort of breaks me away from the bad guy. And I'm hoping like, boy, I hope he doesn't hit you hard. Cause I know you've only got two hits left in you. And if he hits three, you're going to be down and that's going to suck. Right. And I'm on their side. Like, I don't want him to hit three times. <laughs> like I want him to make it. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that, 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 that idea of, of being over on the player side where we're all together watching the situation happen. And I just happen to be the one that's running the monsters. The only way that could occur is if I was given this total responsibility for, for how the game is supposed to go. So yeah, I think it, I think it works. Yeah. And, and so Dave, Dave, who always has really good thoughts here. I think the flip side is that there's more nervousness among new DM. Yeah. Well, I would argue against that, Dave, because there are so many more new DMs now than there were in fourth edition. It is not even a question. Like I remember, Enrique, you and I, I'm sure had this conversation. I probably, I'm sure Dave had this conversation that D&D was going to die with the Gen Xers, right? That like, yeah. it's not going to last. Video games are going to take over. We're the last D&D players. No one, no one is saying that now, right? No one is saying that now. Instead, all of my coworkers are telling me, hey, my kids started playing D&D. Can you help me out? <laughs> right yeah. it is you know it is it is so i i think new new dms and i see it like one of the things i really try hard to do is i'm always trying to keep my thumb on like where people are with D. and one of the areas where i spend a lot of time is on reddit where lots and lots and lots of new dms show up and say like hey i'm brand new what do i do right and i'm always like i've got i've got a template now and i'm like here here's how to get started in D. and um so is it pot you know i'm arguing with no, i'm arguing with dave not arguing with Dave, but you know, is there is there nervousness with D and D? There's probably a nervousness either way, because like it's a big, heavy game. Fourth edition was a big, heavy rules game, and trying to figure out those rules was hard. And if you think about the way fourth started, you didn't have any of the tools you needed. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this map when there's no map, <laughs> right? Like, I don't have a, I don't know about foot mats, and I don't have dungeon tiles. So, I'd argue that probably there, it, it's an intimidating game to start. But I'm seeing way more people starting now with fifth than than anything else. Uh, and, and the popularity has gone up. I heard, I heard a news thing that said it's 30% growth last year and it's wow. sixth year. Yeah. That's net. That's crazy. So we're here talking on your Twitch channel yeah. about D and D. Yeah. Uh, we met on Twitter, you and I, yeah, we, you have, you're going to post this on YouTube later and yeah. uh, you're talking about Reddit D and D communities. <laughs> and I, I'm going to use all that to transition to what I think was one of the biggest benefits of 4E and one of the greatest things about 4E, and I think 4E helped create a huge, the I think helped it helped create the foundation for what has become a pretty big online massive D and D community that 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 I think I could point back to a lot of the the conversations that 4E helped you know form on Twitter and places like Twitter and on places like you know blogs and and the old you know Dave's here the old RPG Bloggers Network which gave birth to a lot of people who are now you know big parts of the D&D discourse um and i think 4e did that really well like mm -hmm. like it became a an addition to the game where a lot of people you know sort of gathered around and, and built a community 
out of that has carried over to 5e and obviously it's exploded into this massive yeah. you know <laughs> i remember massive thing yeah i remember two con- so you and i met more than 10 years ago right about 10 years ago at gen con yeah and yeah. i don't know all right yeah. but we met we met kind of the beginning of this and and we shared yeah. we shared a joint friend who miraculously happened to be both your childhood friend and a local player in my game right without <laughs> knowing that they were we had this connection Right. And um, yeah, and, and we did. And like Dave, Dave Chalker is here, right? And Dave, Dave was part of that and Chad EDM and Tracy Hurley and Quinn Murphy and all these great people that were, were blogging about fourth edition, right? We all loved it. And we knew that there's a bunch of grognards out there who didn't like fourth. And like, you know, and, and the argument online was like, they hated fourth and they never even read it or tried it, right? They just didn't like it, period. And you're like, okay, well, we're not talking about those people. But, you know, we played it and tried it and we poured ourselves into it. You know, Quinn Murphy had the... Uh, uh, what did he call them? The, the, the monster, the phased monsters, right? And he had a name the, for the it. World, world breakers. World breakers, right? And so everybody was doing these like, you know, great stuff to, 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 to bring all this stuff to the game. And I remember like about four or five, I think it was when fifth edition was just coming out and you and I were at some event in Gen Con and you're like, I don't even know who to follow on Twitter anymore. Right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it used to be like, we knew everybody that were like the big movers and shakers in this in this community. We knew the people that were doing all that kinds of stuff. And now it's like, you know, I, I, I always, the metaphor that I use is you and I are standing on the platform of a train and a train goes, whoa, and we're like, the hell was that, right? Like, you know, and Matt Mercer's riding on top and we're like, what, what is, wait, like I, you know, uh. and you know, it still feels like that. And what I realized is there's no D&D community anymore. There are many, many different communities, you know? And one of the, like, one of the things that I did is like, if you look at the D&D hashtag on Twitter, I think it's like 30% of the tweets are about dice, right? There are huge communities of people who just like talking about dice. And making dice. And making dice. And the shinier and crazier, the better. <laughs> and then you have Kickstarters that are like six-figure, like $500,000 Kickstarters that are just about dice. And you're like, who who are they? And I've never heard of them before. I'm like, who are these people, right? Like. Oh. Hold on, I'm gonna pause you for a second because yeah. I'm reading a comment on your chat. It says Sarah from three three three. Yeah, I had been doing the Mercer way uh, where you keep plastic rings from drinks. <laughs> that, that is not the Mercer way. That is not we the Mercer putting, way, I, man. We're putting right. uh, soda soda rings on our <laughs> I miniatures had, back in two thousand eight. I had I had coworkers <laughs> at my job who would raid the recycle. They would like yeah. open up the recycle things and take them out. And they're like, I got to get these because Mike likes red ones. You know, yeah. <laughs> they were like, red, was, red was bloody. Red was bloody. And you needed you needed as many red ones as you can get. Right. Yeah, so Green like Coca-Cola, was Hunter's Mark. Coca-Cola had a condition. Sprite had a specific condition. <laughs> yeah. Di- uh, Coke Zero. Condition. Coke yeah. Zero were really good ones because those were your warlock, your warlock hexes. Right. With Matt the black Mercer. ring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's yeah. That that, that to me is like it, it's hard not to get grognardy about it when we go. I, by, to, by the way, I'm just playing with Seraphim. I you yeah. know no no. Uh, I don't think yeah. Being, but if it's, I'm not being a jerk about it. I'm I mean, you remember you remember like we we talked about Ollie. Like we were having this conversation on our DMs on Twitter when we were watching all the people talking about how great Forey does. It's like you remember the people that have like boxes of Ollie tools that they'd have to carry around. With, I, I with still like, have them. <laughs> like 900 <laughs> magnets. Magnet. And your yeah. character had this big stack, and and if you had the old Ollie ones, they'd snap together, so you'd move and you'd get a train of minis falling around the table. Oh my god! Right. So it was like that's you know. I don't know. It's it's maybe crazy. Mercer maybe Mercer learned it from us. Maybe who knows? <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. So there's part of me that's right. It's hard not to be grognardy about it because you see all these people on Twitter, and they're talking about like, oh, fourth edition was this great and unappreciated edition, and it would have been a lot more popular for X, Y, and Z, and they love that. Mike, where the hell were you ten years ago? Like I was there. Like Enrique and I were talking about this on Twitter ten years ago. No one was talking to us. Right. No, like, you know, your account was made two years ago. Right. Don't don't get into this whole like, you know, fourth edition. We were there in the trenches with our lived, hunting down, you know, it, yeah. we right. We were like dumpster diving for freaking rings for our miniatures. Where were you back then? So it's hard not to you get, you know, get a little bit of not not even from the standpoint of like it was good or bad, but just like we were getting our asses handed to us by 3.5 players all the time who were like, all that's not D and D that's a video game. And you're like, you know, go suck an egg. Right. Like I, I still have scars from the edition wars. <laughs> right. Right. We're all, we're all toughened from the, 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 the original edition wars. And I guess this is like the new edition war. I don't, I don't know, but whatever, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, old man yells at cloud. That's exactly what we're. That's exactly why we're here today. But I, look, I, look, I, I think four E. There's a lot of things that five E, and this is another hour long conversation. Right. But I think five E when it was launching, they also promised a lot of things that they would carry over, um, from four E. Yeah. That I don't think that premise was kept. That, yeah. that promise was there were, kept. There were some babies um, thrown out with the bathwater. Yeah, they, definitely. Because they talked a lot about modular encounter yep. and different rules if you wanted more tactical play versus not. And and eh. things, you know, they, they made a lot of promises at the beginning that I don't think they kept. Yeah. But but then again, the flip side of that is that I still I enjoy 5e so much right. that I don't miss no, I'm having good. most right. of that stuff. I'm good. Well, like, the, I don't need so you. Tactical I, combat. I uh, I, I don't need a book now to include an extra page of the encounter to tell me how to do it tactically. Yeah, you'll or, figure it or out. Not. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. we're gonna get it. So yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about skill challenges. But like, yeah, on the tactical side, the interesting thing is, I, I I'm on the side of like, how come all of the Watsi designers that are playing games in public are using Theater of the Mind, and there's a quarter page of Theater of the Mind guidelines in the Dungeon Master's Guide and nothing else, like. And then you go to Xanathar's Guide. Xanathar's Guide has a whole section on tactical combat, which uses dice or something to do areas of effect. Um, oh, you're muted, by the way. Or are you muted on purpose? So, Sorry, I'm talking to my kids. So. Yeah. So it had, you know, so the DMG has a lot of tactical guidance in there. It has things like facing. I think uh, Evil John just brought up that, like, if you want facing rules, which 4th edition never had, there are facing rules inside the Dungeon Master's Guide. So there's a lot of options that aren't used. And then there's some like the flanking rules that are, right? And and so I think there's a fair bit of tactical. I actually wish it had better guidelines for Theater of the Mind, you know, because we're all making them up. And so is Watsy. Like you watch, you know, I just watched Chris Perkins run a game for the the cast of Stranger Things completely in Theater of the Mind. And it's like, how come you're not articulating that in some kind of product? Like one page in a book like Tasha's would help so many people figure out how to run Theater of the Mind better well, than they are. It- if, if if we're gonna go down that route, I mean, you're right. They they explain, they give you pages of books yeah. in Tasha's and, and and Xanathar's with little diagrams for the miniatures and the mm-hmm. tacticals and the tokens and this right. and that. Right. But you don't do that for theater of the Nothing. mind, and yet you claim the game is by default theater of the mind. <laughs> right. Or, or not even by default, and, but like. Um. But they're playing it that way. Like Chris Perkins gave away all. He had a like a 50 gallon drum of miniatures. It was probably worth, I don't know, maybe six figures, but certainly five figures. And he gave them all he away. away. Yeah. He'd like guests would come in and he'd just say, here's some miniatures, take whatever you want until it was empty. His entire, it was like wow. every miniature they ever made, you know? Wow. And, yeah. And he had this huge Tupperware drum of it and, and, and gave them all away. So they don't use theater of the mind. I was talking to um, Jeremy Crawford and he said that the whole staff uses theater of the mind. I don't know if that's still true because well, now they got new staff members on board and they might be, for all I know, they're doing more gridded play. But I could tell you when they're running online or they're running at conventions, they're using theater of the mind. They don't use a grid. So it's like, why don't they capture their own experiences and put them in something? And I'm like, well, I'll do it. But no one listens to me. So I think when I, pl- you know what, when I played at D&D Live, the Avernus stuff, yeah. I think that was off theater of the mind. Right. right. I, think that was- I tell you, you go, you go and you look and, and most of it, yeah. most of it's theater of the mind. Um, skill challenges. How do you feel about skill challenges? It's a big piece of foray that, that didn't make it over to fifth. And good riddance because I don't think it was. I don't... <laughs> you and I both. I, I never, skill challenges was like doing your income taxes as far as I'm concerned. It was yeah. like, here's this sheet and you've got so many successes between so many failures and you have to do these certain things. I literally would print out like a, like a, like doing your SATs. Or voting, you they, know, it was they like try to co- they, they try to codify something that we were doing already. Like, <laughs> right. I, I want to try to get over this wall, and then I'm going to try to open that door. Okay, so right. you're going to make a climb check, and then you're going to make a yeah. You're going to try to pick uh, pick the lock. Okay. Right. I, I don't need to count successes right. versus it was too codified, and, and it didn't need to be exactly. And the way you brought it up is yeah. exactly the way it ought to be, which is improvise based on what the players try to do. Right. So like, the problem with skill challenges is there's only so many things you could do, and you're like, no, if you want to ride the boat down the river. You know, one of you is paddling the boat, one of you is guiding the boat, one of you is fighting Kutoa, right? Which one of you wants to do which? And it was like, the problem is it added the structure when it was improv was a far better way to handle it. The things that it also gave you, the steps, it outlined steps. And then my question of the DM was, are players supposed to guess that they're going to do this? Or am I supposed to just tell them, you're going to get on the canoe and you're going to hit the uh, alligator with your paddle? Yeah. Like, uh, you know. (laughs) 
<laughs> I never understood. I, I didn't understand what that meant. If the players want to uh, crack open the safe with a shovel and then steal, right? Like trying to write them out. Just don't plan them. What if they don't? What if they don't come to that conclusion? Right. Like, supposed- or they come up with something completely different. What if they cast yeah. a spell and levitate? And you're like, oh, I have a- what levitate? Like, ah, uh, you can't. A frog counter spells. You know, like what do you? You know. So, so the, uh, we had a couple people in here that are talking about their love for skill challenges, and both of them have said, "Yeah, you're right. We do improvise them." And then, An idea, it, the idea was great. The the execution, yeah, was just terrible. And, I, and boy, that was another one where like I really tried to uh, work on that the whole time fourth edition was out. I wrote skill challenge worksheets. I came up with all kinds of like sub rules for it. I really dove into it, and my end conclusion was like, this just doesn't. <laughs> just doesn't. I think work. It, I think it looked great on someone's uh, design worksheet. Yeah. And they came up with it. They came up with a nice grid that they could print right. out in a book, and, and it, it looked great on paper. Yeah. But since it wasn't play tested beyond <laughs> them in that office, yeah. Evil John, Evil John says skill challenges are just playing D and D, and I'm like, pretty much, right? Like it, it does bring up something that that I I changed. I had a I had a I had a wonderful, uh, a, you know, a wonderful sort of epiphany from uh, our other friend Dave Hartledge, DM David. Um, and he, we, we met at a convention and one time he like looked at me, he's like, do you realize how much you've changed or your, your writing has changed in like the last four years? And I'm like, and I kind of thought about like, I guess it really has. And that, that's kind of the example of like before everything was really codified and rigid. And now I'm like, I don't know, roll a skill check, you know? And, and there's something really powerful about moving to, uh, situations instead of defining, the mechanics of something. So the idea of like, you're on a boat going down some rapids, like that's the situation. And then you let people react and you react to how they react. It's a much better way to go than like the down the rapids skill challenge, which is what they used to have. I think that down the rapids one is actually one that that's used, which is like, how are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna do this? So yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what people feel is missing from fifth edition in the area of skill challenges and what they want and whether or not that would actually be good because I don't think it would be. Man, you got an army of people behind you. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to... Uh, we'll, we'll call it a day? We're, we're at an hour, so I got to call it a day. All right, my friend, thank you for coming on and chatting about fourth edition. And all the people in the chat, thank you for coming. And Dave, I'm going to take you up on that let's talk about gridded play one day, and we'll do the exact same thing. Only instead of let's talk about 4E, it'll be let's talk about gridded. Let's talk about tactical well, combat. We will pick up this chat later because I think it's a good chat. Awesome. But, thank you, my friend. Uh, all right, Mike. Always appreciate it. Thank you all on the stream, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye.